0: Nice and hot, isn't it? Oh. The, amount of, the amount of parami we're building up, you know. Who wants to meditate on a day like this? Huh? It's only the toughest. The toughest will endure. <laughs> it's actually quite good. The heat has advantages. It makes you more relaxed, and a bit more, as we say in Thai, sabai sabai. Sabai chai means everything is okay, kind of attitude, you know. And it's not such a bad thing because our tendency is to always to think that things are not okay. You know, we keep finding energy through, you know, repeating to ourselves consciously or subconsciously, "We're not okay. This, this is not okay. I'm not okay. The weather is not okay. The room is not okay." whatever you know the criticism is uh, often what fuels our desire to move and act guilt and criticism. Many people suffer from that. And it's um, it's an unfortunate situation because we don't have to make ourselves we don't have to... You don't have to be motivated by these mental states and yet it's really um, habitual, isn't it? It's so habitual. So uh, it feels so true as well. There's a kind of element of somehow so it feels so real that to generate guilt, remorse to feel that life is not okay and I'm not okay um, is is a means of um, progress. Yeah. And it it's true, I mean that realization that things are not satisfactory and things, things are not, um, you know, they're not in harmony that realization in itself is maybe a moment of awakening, a moment of seeing clearly the nature of life. Because most of life is really not in a state of, um, um, it's not stable. Most of life is, in fact all of life is unstable. You never know what's going to come around the corner. You never know what's going to happen. We never know how people are going to respond to us. And yet we try to make life so predictable always. We spend a lot of energy just trying to make things predictable. Not realizing that in that desire to have things predictable, there is also an element of death. You know, It's a kind of an element of, a, a kind of a deadening element. Because to make things predictable, you have to control them, and control itself is not, um, you know, control itself. Unfortunately, often comes from our own willpower, comes from the sense of self. It doesn't come from wisdom. There is, you could say, that that which controls our mind at some level is a restraint that comes from. Seeing clearly, insight, insight into the danger of a mind that is completely, that is unruly and just following its own desires, its own biases, its own, um, its own delusion. So. Um, when we uh, look at the mind in practice like in the way we have done today what we find is you know from what people have tell me over the many years now is often a, a kind of an entity there who is keeps hanging on to the past you know keeps hanging on to all the things that went wrong 20 years ago Ten years ago, five years ago, one year ago, six months ago, six days ago. That kind of clinging to the past because the past is much more predictable than the future. (laughs) You know, even though it's still, we only remember half of the stories. It's more predictable to hang on to the past and to let go and go into the unknown of the future. So this is why we get attached to our past history. As we walk along and and continue to practice most of you who have done this for some years realize that by now I'm sure that we're not here to get out of our predicament. We're not here to move out of our human conditions. Even though maybe at the beginning you thought, oh, if I practice long enough, maybe one day I'll be really happy forever and ever. I will kind of, all my problem will be completely eradicated Oh, my relationship will just be wonderful, and I'll be always feeling super good, on top of the world, in control, and everybody will love me. I will love everybody. I'm sure by now you've woken up from the dream of reality, (laughs) the dream of you know of imagining what the practice is about. And there are various levels of practice, you know. Each one of us have a, are complex entities. Sometimes our meditation uh, goes very well. We, we, the mind, gets concentrated or is at peace, or you know, and we can deal with the difficulties that come up. We can we can handle the, the obstacles of the mind, you know, whether we are. In, you know, we can see clearly the, the changing nature of thoughts and uh, you know, we can observe how the mind lets go and so on. And then at other time, when we feel stuck and nothing seems to be working, we, you, we, we translate often wrongly those moments. We turn the moments when we things go wrong, our life is in a mess, our relationship keep breaking up, you know, our, 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 we lose our job, our partner just slammed the door and say goodbye. Our children are creating havoc in our lives, hate their mother, they hate their father. You know, we hate our mother and our father or, or we hate our teacher or, you know, we get disappointed and we feel we feel really um, that the best center in the world suddenly becomes just uh, another boring perception in our mind. You know, we, we, we at that moment identify immediately with those experiences often, don't we? As if having encountered a difficulty was not supposed to happen somehow. Yet the Buddha talks about karma, doesn't he? He says the reason we are here is because of karma, of past actions we have created, you know, we are in this body, the human realm. And uh, he points to the fact that this life is very precious, that being born as a human being is as rare as a Turtle navigating on the on the on the ocean, as rare as the possibility of a turtle passing her neck through a little uh, rubber ring that will be floating on the water of an ocean. On the water oh. of an ocean, it's as rare to as to be a, a born as a human being as the possibility of this turtle getting her neck through the ring rubber ring that would float on the, on the ocean. So obviously we've done something good to be here, otherwise we wouldn't be around practicing Dhamma. You know, we wouldn't be able to even hear the Dhamma. We'll be out there killing, hating and stealing and lying and so on. You know, we will not be able to be sit still and listen to the Dhamma and be patient with ourselves, be being able to endure the heat be able to endure the the restlessness of the body, the mental states that makes our life miserable and so on, just to be able to be present with that. So um, we assume at some level that the human life is supposed to be um, easy, happy forever. We don't think we assume, do we? We don't actually think that like, like that consciously. But the amount of disappointment that we get in life is a sure, um, a, a sure way of knowing how much we expect from it. If you look at the amount of disappointment you've had in your life, you can see they are proportional to the amount of, to the amount of expectation you had about the, your life. Hmm? And so, um, at some level, we can stay and get stuck, you know, just feeling disappointed, miffed, or we can move on and start realizing that life is like a flow, like a river, and there's all sorts of things that we can encounter in this river. You know, boulders and waterfalls and drops and all um, sort of uh, maybe even dangerous fishes and and uh, and creatures and so on you know. So, in meditation, we have to be very honest, you know, with ourselves. We can't hide anymore. We can still hide from people, but we can't actually hide from ourselves. It's not, you know, it's not possible to practice and hide at the same time, even though we still have the habit of trying to avoid looking bad, trying to avoid looking silly or looking um, somehow, we're frightened to disappoint people. We want to please. We want to be charming. You know, we're very frightened to not play the role that this society is asking us to play. We've put on the, to drop the mask that we are asked to wear all the time. You know and we fall prey of, um, of being, you know, we, we are attached to looking good and frightened of its opposite and unless you bring uh, a clear understanding and mindfulness to the mechanisms of the mind that keeps folding, that keeps uh, moving from one to the other, you will um, not be able to free yourself, I mean it's very simple. Because we can have as much conceit trying to, 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 to think that we are inferior as trying to think we are superior. In the Buddhist teaching there is a very nice explanation of the way conceit works, the sense of self, conceit, that which you conceive as yourself. The Buddha says whether you think you are superior, equal or inferior, it's all conceit. It's all a way of conceiving a sense of self. That was a great relief when I read this years ago. Because when you think you're superior and you can judge this, you think, oh this is bad, I'm thinking I'm better than they are. So you try to make yourself inferior, but that doesn't seem to work either because you don't feel comfortable there, it seem to be a very good thing. And feeling equal is actually the hardest one. We have an imp- And we find it impossible to experience equality between each other. The mind, it's not that you personally have difficulty in, in doing that, it's just the way the mind is conditioned. We always want to put somebody up or somebody down, have you ever noticed that? We can't put anybody on the same level because there's no one there. So, when we create a sense of self, it's always up or down, and sometimes we can get mistaken and say, "Oh, you know we're all on the same, boat, we're all equal." I see this with some of the women I've encountered encountered in my life. you know, they think they've practiced, so they think they're as good as none or they are as, as you know they all know what we know. It's like, yeah, you know." I know what your your experience is. I know exactly what it is. I've lived in community myself, you know. So they're trying to make us all equal. You know. Another form of conceit, unfortunately. So where does that leave us? (laughs) Doesn't leave much room to cling, does it? You know. You think right now, you know, how many people you know and where do you put them? The box up or the box down? But there's not many people in the, on the same level with you. The desire of the mind to cling to some image that is better than us, or to be empowering ourselves through clinging to an image of someone being lower than us or worse than us, is very strong. Very strong mechanism of conditioned mind. For women, for example, you know, many women feel disempowered or lower than men, and societies keep reinforcing that quite a lot. And then the men, who don't even feel particularly more powerful than the women, have to, you know, pump up the kind of muscle that make them feel more powerful somehow, better. Because that's what society wants them to be. And so as women for example we often feel inferior and we need a man or somebody else who is make a, going to make us feel, going to raise us up. We're still at that level where we need somebody else to make us feel elevated. we still instead of, so this is a conceit that's projected out you know. We don't cling to the superior person in oneself. We create ourselves inferior and then we cling to somebody else out there who is superior to us and we identify with that person. That's what we do a lot with teachers and student relationships. Yeah. They know, I don't know. It's true at some level. People may have more experience than you. But to reflect back and see that yes, even though people have more knowledge, more experience, more understanding, more, more practice and so on, you know. Uh, and maybe that example in the teacher-student relationship might not be the best one, but just look into your life how many time you, in your relationship, you train, you tend to either raise somebody up or create somebody lower than you. Not as good, not as not as cultured, not as knowledgeable. So that way, that conceit, the the, uh, the capacity to conceive oneself as being a certain way, is needs to be seen, needs to be really um, um, penetrated through. You know, you need to see through that. Otherwise, we are kind of at the mercy of the mind that that think like that. You know, the conceit. Sometimes we think conceit as somehow a, a mental states or a, a state of of being which um, which I create, which we create ourselves, but. We don't, you know. We, if we ask each, each, any one of us, not, none of us will want to be conceited, no. and yet the conceit arises through clinging to the self, to the, 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 this entity, this kind of amalgam, 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 you know, of thoughts, emotions, memory, perception, which we solidify and create as a self. You know, often the self is compared to a very, you know, to a, 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 a yarn of wool that's been totally entangled yarn of wood or wool. You know, and then through meditation we start disentangling this, this, this tangled yarn of wool. You know, we start disentangling little by little. So when I told you this morning that the, 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 you could see the, the mood of the day was not just, you know, being mindful and being aware and putting a lot of energy but also to relax deeply and to be kind and, and have developed compassion towards yourself during the day when things are difficult, you know. Why is that? Because compassion and relaxation allows a space for the thread to be disentangled. You know, you've seen when you want to disentangle something and you go too fast or you're too much in a hurry then things just kind of get tightened up you look at the example of a yarn and wool, everything gets tangled up. I've experienced that many times with many different things, you know. I mean, just even externally, disentangling, disentangling the threads or cords that get, you don't even know how they can get entangled the way they do, just extraordinary. You know, the, the, the you know, just shatters already, you know, those, um, blinds that you go, they go up and down and you find the core just completely entangled and say how did that happen? You didn't even do anything. And so to disentangle that you need to go very gently and have very much the time to do that and you have to look at where the thread is going through, which way and how it's kind of all sort of stuck together. And it's a good image for the mind itself you because know, our mind gets entangled all the time. And the, the, that sense of self, which is not an unhealthy thing, if we don't cling to it, we just use it as a convention, rather than ultimate reality, you know, we need that. As the Buddha says, even though there is, uh, the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, unformed, and so on, still, uh, when I look at Lewis, he's not just an empty space for me or for everyone else. He's a man. He's the hair like this, t-shirt like that. And when I refer to Lewis, I call him Lewis. I just don't call him Shunyata. <laughs> you know, or when I talk to Jill, I relate to Jill. She's American. She's not French. She's from you know, she's from San Jose, she's not from, I don't know, Moscow or, you know, so you relate to people on conventional level. But what we do, we we, instead of the conventional reality, reality for many of us become an ultimate one, you know, it's like, if the conventional reality doesn't work, it's like, oh my God, I'm lost, you know, I've lost it all. So when you lose a job, or when you don't get the marks that you're supposed to get, you know, often we get, some people kill themselves, you know, they haven't realized that there's more to it than despair. There's more to life than just get completely desperate, selfish, greedy, and miserable. Even though, of course, you could say, well, if a man or women who have four or five children lose their job, I mean, they have really the right to feel desperate. Sure, of course they do. But another level, if there is no, somebody is not practicing with that, then they will feel even more desperate, and even more lost, and even more, you know. But just knowing, you know, that there's time for failure, and the time for success, the time for disasters, and the time for good fortune, the time for breaking our relationship and the time for put, bringing them together, the time for being sick and the time for being healthy, it's like you know, uh, you know, it's this Chinese story. It's a story of a Chinese story that uh, I think I found in the story of the heart, story of the spirit from Jack Confield and uh, Christina Feldman. There was a story. Uh, which really illustrates many, in many ways, I don't know if I remember all the details, but it illustrates the way, um, you know, the, the, the wisdom we can develop in life. The story of a man is a farmer in China and his, um, his son is uh, called uh, to, to go to war. Then just before that, so he, people say, oh what a terrible thing, you only have one son. You know how you can to cope with that and in the song get an accident or sort of you know get get hurt and uh, and then it doesn't go to war and i don't know if do, do you know the story yes. you know you know enough of that story to know that it's a good for us it's a good example to remember that that when we' are down the pit that might be actually the beginning of light yeah. you know and it's often the case you know so one let's say one miserable situation actually turned out to be a very favorable one. You know, one situation that seemed like a complete disaster and a complete failure turned out, when you look back 20 years later or 10 years later, to have been perhaps the best thing that happened to you, you know. But don't we forget that so often. I try to remember that, you know. But I, I, like you, I forget too, again and again. Because the power of um, wanting things to be a certain way and to feel somehow that, you know, that if you lived correctly and if you lived well and if you did write the right thing, somehow life should never fail you. You know, life should never give you this kind of situation where you feel that. What did I do wrong to get this? So karma, you know, when we look at the the law of karma we may not be able to find out why we are here but the Buddha says it's a very special thing it's very unique to be able to be born as a human being because as a human being, as maybe you've heard many times, we have a good balance between dukkha and sukha, between happiness and suffering. And so, because of that, then we get really miserable because we cling to happiness and we try to push away unhappiness or misery. And that is enough, That, that creates enough of a friction for us to want to wake up to that. Without that friction, we'll be Asleep, you know, it's like those heavenly realms in the Tusita heaven or the, you know, or, or the uh, Tavatimsa heaven, you know, when you, you, they're just happy for eons of time, they never wake up, you know. So it's not such a good deal when you think of it. Imagine yourself with, you know, going to this blissful state of jhanas, you know, and just staying there for eons of time and not getting liberated. Well, that would be fun, would it? Just getting stuck in a kind of blissful state forever and ever. I don't think we could because we'd rather get stuck into the hell realm forever and ever. <laughs> you know, this is more familiar somehow. <laughs> Isn't it true? You know, with how many people you know, people talk to me today but I've heard this again and again. And I've seen it in myself, you know, that if we've done something wrong in the past, let's be really have a wretched time ourselves. The more miserable we'll be, the better, you know, so we can really pay off our debts of bad karma. This is, the Buddha says, this is damn stupid, you know. (laughs) This is really silly. You don't pay off bad karma by perpetuating suffering, you know, you pay off bad karma by just bearing with it. When it comes up, whatever result of your karma has been from the past, whatever result from past karma you have to experience now, just allowing to come up and releasing it, it's, you know, is enough. That's enough of a suffering, don't you think? To have to sit on a cushion on the zafu for several hours remembering the conversation you had with your mother 20 years ago and how she mistreat, mistreated you or your boyfriend or your girlfriend how miffed you were and then carry on 20 years later still remembering that moment where you smacked her and she kicked you, (laughs) you know, when your mother told you what a terrible girl you were and still be influenced by that nowadays, don't you think that's enough for a (laughs) payoff? I mean do we have to make more of it or? But we stayed, we we laugh, but we're not convinced of it, are we? <laughs> we still do it all the time, unconsciously, still making ourselves somehow recreating that sense of um, being a bad girl, being a bad man, being you know being terrible, being nasty. Somehow, because we just looked somebody in the face, you know, you was a nasty feeling in the heart. So we have very high expectations about ourselves. And the only way to free ourselves from karma is to begin right here, right now, where you are. Because that's where karma is piling up, it's like you've all got, got a whole trash can there, sitting on this t- trash can, and you might as well let it go, you know, in trash can only, you kind know, feels it feels better when it gets empty, doesn't it, and you can start cleaning it as well and not empty and not filling up again, you know. But the only thing that really fills up the trash can and emptying it is a sense of self still, you know. Because you only fill the trash can because you still still believing there. you've got a self who is in control and somehow should be good, should never fail you, should be on top of the world, successful. and not make you suffer. So karma, as you know, the word karma means to do, it comes from the the word, the root ka, you know, and karanti, and I'm not a Pali expert, you know, but I've learned a bit of Pali, but the root itself means, you know, to do. So it's not a fatalistic kind of notions of you have to really pay all the, you know, sort of pay for all the terrible things you've done. You can actually even lighten up your karma by starting living your life skillfully. You can lighten up. You know, even the time of the Buddha, you think he got he got off without karma after his enlightenment. Some of you may remember 45 years he lived, 45 years he taught thousands of people, 10,000 of people. He still had karma, you know, his body, became old, he had to rest and lie down in the afternoon like all of us feel like doing sometimes. You know sometimes he will not teach his back hurt and he will be sitting against a pillar and and lie down and rest. And Then people try to throw boulders over his head and try to kill him and he only got a little scratched toes. Well if he hadn't been a Buddha he probably would have been squashed, squashed, reduced to a little pool of something or other. You know, people tried to kill him, people tried to accuse, women Try one woman tried to accuse of having, of him having made her pregnant. And you know what he said to her, this is wonderful, wonderful response when she came to, she's, she was really uh, under the spell of a group of ascetics who were trying to um, you know, uh, trying to destroy the Buddha's reputation. And uh, so she made herself, as she was pregnant, she she put stuff under her belly, under her uh, dress, and, and she went to the Buddha and said that he made her pregnant. And he looked at her and he said, well, sister, only you and me will know that, can know that. Isn't it a wonderful response? He's not frightened, he said, only you and me will know that. Whether I've made you pregnant or not, he wasn't frightened, and he knew, you know, he knew the truth. He didn't have to defend himself. In other words, you know, he said, "You know whether I made you pregnant, and I know whether I made you pregnant." That was all he said. He didn't defend himself. He didn't try to. Uh, Uh, prove something or or another thing, he didn't try to justify anything, He just said only you and me can know that. So the Buddha had karma, you know, his cousin, his cousin, his very cousin tried to, you know, tried to destroy him, wanted to take over his order. Monks were a pain in the neck, you know, they were always trying to give him such a hard time by proving that all that he had established was just nonsense, that they could do so much better by having sex, eating three times a day, living the way they liked. They could do very well too, they did not need all these ascetic practices and this path of restraint, you know, they tried to prove to the Buddha that his cousin Devadatta tried to um, tried to force the Buddha to establish vegetarianism as a norm. And the Buddha said no, he didn't want to enforce vegetarianism. Because monks and nuns of, uh, of the Buddha were uh, alms mendicants, they were dependent on the generosity of other people and forcing vegetarianism would mean that only some people would be able to offer food to the monks and nuns. So it wasn't that he was against the killing of animals, but out of compassion for the donors, he wanted everyone to be able to offer food, so he never forbade meat, for example, or animal products. Only in certain circumstances could you refuse to um, meet. For example, when an animal had been killed, especially for you, and certain meat like elephants' meat, snakes' meat, and two or three different kinds of animals as well that you could refuse So he had karma, he had also to bear with the result of past action, not from even this, his own life, but from past lives. And the the teachings are, you know, filled with those stories of people having to bear in this life what happened in past lives. You know, so it became much less personal on some level. You know, it be. You realize that there was a much broader, much kind of much more broader space and expanses to your life than just what happened to you when you were a child, or you know. Even though, sure, one's childhood will definitely, um, you know, influence the way we will live as an adult later on. But still, there are more to this life than we can we can see, we can imagine, you know. So I find that helpful to remember that there has, there has been past lives, there, ha, there will be future lives, there has been past, past lives, because in a, in a way, um, I never thought of this as being very helpful for many years, or just even interested in that at all. But as a, as a you know, having listened to a number of, uh, of the teaching of His Holiness of Dalai Lama, when I, I was for 10 days in Dharamsala in 1960, uh, listening to him teaching uh, for 10 days, all day, and when he said, I don't know if it was on that occasion, but he said, you know, it's actually quite nice to think of several lifetimes, especially for Westerners, because we're so much in a hurry and always kind of wanting to reach the goal as quickly as we can so we can, we can get there first. You know, we can be the first one to get there. Actually, thinking of several lifetimes, it's actually, we start relaxing a little bit and, and give ourselves a little bit of the space we need to disentangle that yarn of wool we call the karma of our personal karma. You know. Of course, the danger it can make us lazy as well. You know, it's like you say, oh my God, you know, I can do that next lifetime. <laughs> like the diet that all all of us did as young women. You know, We're, oh well, we'll start tomorrow. You know, we want all to get slim and thin and looking good. You know, but how hard it is. You know, you say, well, I'll start tomorrow. You know. So, this is when, you know, reflecting on the danger of unskillful karma becomes important and gives really an incentive and a sense of urgency to our life. When we realize that just even a small, you know, just the way we think can affect our life so deeply, so profoundly, even, even though nobody sees it. No one can see what, you know, unless people are mind reading. You know, which happens a lot in the East, you know, but here I don't think people are too bogged down with their own thinking, I think, to even start reading anybody's mind. (laughs) You know, but most of us are, you know, we can't think all day long the most stupid thought because nobody is actually watching. We're much more conscious of our actions, aren't we? We will never do what we think because we will be so embarrassed. So that's why the Vinaya, the discipline, is actually in, uh, only dealing with action by body and speech, not with action by, you know, through the mind. So you can think anything really. And uh, that is taken care of by your meditation practice. But the Vinaya, or the discipline, the monastic discipline, the precept that we commit ourselves to, they're really to uh, restrain our actions and our speech. You know, the five precepts for example. Mm. To refrain from killing, stealing, lying, sexual misconduct, and taking drugs and intoxicants that dulls the mind. These are addressing our actions, drinking, sexual activity, or even just sensual indulgence. It's not just sexual, it's just the, the way we use our energy through any, any of the senses. The indulgence, sensual indulgence. And, um, um, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from killing. This also, it's, you know, we may want to kill somebody, we may want to kill, but the precept is here to help you to not act on it. We may want to steal, but the, and the precept will help you to refrain from stealing, from taking that which is not given. We may want to maybe have sexual intercourse with someone, you know, who is maybe married or maybe is in partnership with somebody else. The precept reminds you to not act on that, you know, to refrain from unskillful actions. And talking, the precept on speech, You know to refrain from lying, gossiping, backbiting, slandering and so on. So those precepts remind you of not following unskillful habit by speech and and unskillful actions by body. Yet um, you know the karma as I was saying yesterday uh, about this man who in his office in New York with a Thai consul, I think, has this, um, if I remember correctly, this little um, line saying, there's nothing more powerful than karma. And it's true. Even the Buddha, um, in one of his uh, suttas, says that if we knew, if we knew the power of one act, one small act of generosity, if we knew the power of that—we will never go. We will never go. We will never go, we'll never, um, go without sharing what we have. We never. Pa- we will never let a day pass without sharing something. You know, if we knew the power of generosity. You know the, mag- the magnitude—the mag- magnitude. Magnitude of generosity, an act, a lack to simple act of generosity. So you see, we don't, we're not very, we don't see very clearly the, the, the way things work. You know, none of us, I don't, you know. I get more a sense for it because through my own experience, you know, I get more of an understanding. You know, all the power of one moment of anger. You know, in the Tibetan tradition, remember many years ago, they would say one moment of anger you destroy all your skillful karma, all your... That's very powerful, isn't it? But in terms of practice, in our tradition, we work, let's say, we emphasize more, you know, the actually, how we can handle that anger without, of course, un, you know, destroying any hope of... <laughs> so, uh, any hope of, of ever coming out of this unskillful karma, you know. So the anger, for example, in a, in its practice, you know, just to be able to, you know, um, we, we might not be, able, we can't get rid of the anger, we can't get rid of it. We can't. So we spend a lot of time judging it, criticizing it, sitting on it, forgetting it, distracting ourselves from it, and so on. Spend a lot of energy trying to ignore it, suppress it, and and yet you know if there was not a strong sense of self-identification to this anger it could just arise and pass away and because of the precepts you have a you know a, a strong commitment to restraint you know the restraint of not acting on unskillful things so how, you know, the way we deal with anger is not very clever, not very wise, because instead of releasing it, we tend to suppress it, judge it, criticizing it, and through this way of dealing with it, we reinforce the sense of self associated with anger. Any thinking that you do around, you know, any thinking which not, has not a na- nature of contemplation you know, a, a, a nature of reflecting on something you know, from, from the heart, of really uh, intending to learn from your anger. You know, thinking about it, keep recreating a sense of self, and that's karma. So even though we think we are doing the right thing by obsessing ourselves with the thought of how bad we are for being so angry and how terrible we are, we're creating a sense of self which is inferior, remember? I'm a bad person. And then we get fed up at some point and when we start being superior by actually projecting it on somebody else, they're wrong, I've got the right to be angry. (laughs) My anger is justified. I'm supposed to be angry, this is good. (laughs) Because if I'm not angry they'll never change. So we become, we get into the superior conceit. Yeah. And the equal will be, well, she's angry, I'm going to be angry too. Tit for tat kind of thing, you know. She is not going to get away with that. If she made me angry, no way he or she is going to get, It's going to get away, I'm going to, Make sure they get what I get. So we're both angry. (laughs) So this is quite a, um, you know, you can see how entangled it is in ourself. How the the tangle is not just a a nice image or some kind of poetic metaphor. (laughs) An expression of um, of the mind as a kind of some sort of sweet image it's very very real we're very entangled in that sense of self which is always trying to prove that it's superior inferior or equal you know but still that entity that is uh, that, that tightens up everything So the Buddha didn't say that you should kind of walk around as if you were an empty box, you know, with the name Sunyata on it, no self. It says there is a conventional self and there is also ultimately there is not a self, but there's a conventional self. So, um, you know, in his time there was many ascetics or groups of people, philosophers or metaphysicists or who were advocating all sorts of theory about the nature of self and no self and so on. You know? But the Buddha says there are two, revel- two levels of reality and we need to incorporate both in our life. We can't just be on a transcendent no self, walking around, going to work and telling your, jo- your, your boss, you know, that suddenly the whole corporates World is turned into an ichadukkha Nata and this actually doesn't exist anymore in your mind. That's not how you're going to get paid at the end of the month. You You need to relate to both levels. So the sense of self is not a bad thing. You know, to remind yourself, I'm Mary (laughs) and I'm, let's say, a doctor. I'm supposed to be here treating my patients, you know. And to cling, to maybe to attach to the fact that you remember you're Mary, that's not a bad thing. If you don't, you probably in our society, you call called loonies, crazy. You don't remember who you are, what you're supposed to be doing. So there is a level, you know, which we need to attend very carefully. I'm a Buddhist nun. There's something I'm supposed to be doing. I represent something. I resisted it for years. <laughs> I didn't want to represent anything. I wanted to be me, 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 free, (laughs) do what I want. I don't want to represent Buddhism. Yet, you know, as you mature, you realize that yes, that's what you have committed yourself to, you know, respect of your commitment. You live in accordance to what is appropriate with that particular um, identification, or not identification, but as a particular um, way of life, I have chosen. And so many of you will be mother or grandmother, or, you know, or you'll be uh, working in this situation or that situation as a therapist, as an artist, as a painter, as a lawyer, as a doctor or whatever, or as a teacher. You, know, you have still to relate to the conventional world, with wisdom, you know. Don't walk around thinking you're just an empty shell that has realized the ultimate, the unborn, unoriginated, because you had a few moments of peace. You know. Even the few moments of peace, it's not the end of the, you know, as I've told you many times, it's not the end of the journey. You know, the end of the journey is really having penetrated through all the obstacles and you know, all the attachment that we have in this life, which come in many disguises. And conceit is perhaps what, disguises, what what disguises it most, thinking that we know, or thinking that we have accumulated things, thinking that we are somehow better than others. There's a very strong conceit in all of us, which you don't even realize until you move out of your situation. Like when I went to Thailand for two and a half years, I realized the conceit of the Western mind. It was very clear how we believe totally that this world we live in is a real world and the only world. You know. And whether we are American or French or English, we look at the Asian world or the you know the the, the the underdeveloped countries' world, you know, from our perspective, but they look from their own perspective, it's very different, their world. But we assume that our worldview is the only one. So when they suffer out there in a certain way, you don't even notice it. But when they look like, you know, they look as, um, you know, you type, if, when you project onto them the way you would feel if you were there, in their place, and you think, "Oh, this is terrible suffering," but where they are, they actually don't suffer at all. They're fine. And sometimes they suffer because you, but because you can't actually perceive, you know, you you can't conceive or perceive what they are going through. Then you don't even notice their suffering. For example, when I was in Asia, and you know, people have always always told me that. They were so fed up with Indian people or Asian people who used to tell them every time they asked for a direction they would always be told, yes I know where it is. And they always ended up lost. They had no idea where they were taken. And they got so annoyed with the, with those people. Thinking how stupid they are. You know, they tell me they know where to go and they don't have a clue and they get, they get me lost. They don't have any idea where to go. Well when I was in Asia, it's really interesting, when I understood that um, somebody told me in Thailand, you know, that the first polite thing you'd say is, you always say yes. So you, the first is good karma, yes, from their point of view, you never refuse anybody, anything. You know, so the first thing you say, yes, I know where it is. It doesn't mean they know where it is, they just say, I'm willing to take you wherever you want to go. And, and then of course they don't know where to go because they have no sense of direction in the way we have, you know, they, they know maps, they have, you know, some of them live in their villages for years, their whole life. So when you say, where is Udatani, you know, Ubon Rajatani or something, you know, they have no idea, where is the next village, they don't even, they can't count in miles or anything like that, you know, they have no idea. They don't even gone out of their village most of the time, you know. And so we assume that they should know the maps in the way we do know the maps, you know, with all our anxiety about how many miles we're going to walk and, but that's not even a problem for them. They can walk for days and not mind, not sleep for, for nights, several nights. They don't mind. They don't count in terms of, you know, how many hours do I sleep and, you know, when they have faith, when they are uplifted, you know, when you go to Sri Lanka or India or Thailand, you know, we can do the most amazing things, you know, that we would never think of doing. So you can see the difference, you know, it made me aware of how much we assume that other people think like us. And should think like us as well. Not only that they do, but they should. And if they don't, there's something wrong with them. When I was younger, my father used to say, "You know, um, yes, we're very good at helping underdeveloped country. We bring we bring them toilets, <laughs> bathroom, as if they needed bathroom. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they've got whole nature to go and pee and poo. But you know, instead of food, maybe we'll just bring them good bathrooms. or <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'm not going to be very long, we're going to stop in a minute, but that sense of conceit is really strong and the karma of that conceit is that we, you know, we, we feel very separated from the rest of the world because we assume that our world is right. You know, the sense of self, if I want to give you, it's not a secret really, but it's something that I have discovered over many years of practice and it wasn't It's, you know, it was, it's been very, very, very clear to me that whenever you feel isolated, alienated, separated, you can be sure, if you want to know what the sense of self is, that's it. That's exactly what the sense of self is emotionally. Isolated, separated, alienated. It's quite sweet, really. It separates us, you know. It took me a while. It would come up, you know, just like a like a breeze. Suddenly, it would come up, and suddenly I felt isolated, alienated, and separated. And I said, "What's going on here?" And what was happening? I was just in my little world for a minute, you know. It was just even it wasn't even like a great sense of self around it. It was just suddenly that condition was going through, going through consciousness, you know. Of, Suddenly there was a desire, you know what the sense of self is, it's I want, or I don't want, you know. And I'm describing this with no judgment. It's not like the sense of self is bad, I want is bad, I don't want is bad. It's not, the teaching doesn't explain, doesn't explain the practice like that. It doesn't say the the self is bad, or no self is good. Oh I want is bad, I don't want it. Doesn't it, it's not that. That's why the Buddha's teaching, the core of his teaching is a full noble truth. It said look at the pain it creates. Does it create pain? No, I'm fine. Well, okay, fine. You don't need to practice. <laughs> Does it create pain? Yes. Okay. Then now instead of being a victim of your sense of self, you can just start incorporating, you know, and and the and the pain itself can become uh, a catalyst for transformation, you know, for, for releasing the knots of that tangle, yarn of wool, it's releasing. Every time you breathe through the suffering, without moving away from it, without wanting it to go away, without one thing or another, every time you start disentangling a bit more the knots of your mind. and so look at you know our our greatest obstacle is not so much what the wrong thing we do or the stupid things that we do our greatest obstacle is to think that we are in charge of our karma so because we think we are in control then we also suffer because we can't actually control anything <laughs> this is our greatest uh, Uh, you know, our greatest sort of tragedy is that we think we are in charge. Karma is in charge, (laughs) not us. Karma, you know, the law of karma is just following its course. And we're just channeling it, all that, you know. We just have to become just a recipient of it and let it pass through. But it's not always obvious, you know, when we are really confronting a difficult situation or a painful encounter with someone, you know, you don't think of that as just, <laughs> you know, karma resolving itself. You think, God, you know, messed it, I blew it again, or, you know, he blew it again, or she blew it. you know, she, you know, I've made a mess of that again. You know, that's why we have the container of practice in the precepts, so that we can continue to be more like a, a channel through which all this past action can get, can come to the point of, point of resolution and be finally put down, let go of. So, i leave you on these words and if there there are any questions we have a few minutes for questions